0: Chapter Thirty Nine of *The Lamplighter*. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. *The Lamplighter* by Maria Susanna Cummins. Chapter Thirty Nine. O'er the wrung heart, from midnight's breathless sky, lone looks the pity of the eternal eye. New Timon. When Gertrude went to her room after dinner, which she did as soon as she had seen Emily comfortably established in the drawing room in conversation with Madame Grisworth. She found there a beautiful bouquet of the choicest flowers which the chambermaid assured her she had been commissioned to deliver herself. She rightly imagined the source from whence they came, divined at once the motives of kindness and sympathy which had prompted the donor of so sweet and acceptable a gift, and felt that, if she must accept pity from any quarter, mr Phillips was one from whom she could more easily bear to receive it than from almost any other. Notwithstanding Netta's intimations, she did not for a moment suspect that any other motives than those of kindness and compassion had instigated the offering of the beautiful flowers. Nor had she reason to do so. Mr. Philip's manner towards her was rather fatherly than lover-like, and though she began to look upon him as a valuable friend, that was the only light in which she had ever thought of viewing him, or believed that he ever regarded her. She placed the flowers in water, returned to the parlour, and constrained herself to talk on indifferent subjects, until she was happily relieved by the breaking up of their circle, part to ride on horseback, part to take a drive, and the rest a nap. Among these last was Gertrude, who availed herself of her headache as an excuse to Emily for this unwanted indulgence. But she could not sleep, and the day wore wearily on. Evening came at last, and with it an urgent invitation to Gertrude to accompany Dr. Grisworth, his daughters, and the Pentricourts, to a concert to be given at the United States Hotel. This she declined doing, and persisted in her refusal, in spite of every endeavor to shake her resolution. She felt that it would be impossible for her to undergo another such encounter as that of the morning. She should be sure to betray herself. And now that the whole day had passed, and Willie had made no attempt to see her, She felt that she would not, for the world, put herself in his way, and run the risk of being discovered and recognized by him in a crowded concert room. No, she would wait. She should see him soon, at the latest, and under the present circumstances she should not know how to meet him. She would preserve her incognito a little longer. So they all went without her, and many others from their hotel, and the parlor, being half deserted, was very quiet. A GREAT RELIEF TO GERTRUDE'S ACHING HEAD AND TROUBLED MIND. LATER IN THE EVENING AN ELDERLY MAN, A CLERGYMAN, HAD BEEN INTRODUCED TO EMILY, AND WAS TALKING WITH HER. MADAM GRYSWORTH AND DR. JEREMY WERE ENTERTAINING EACH OTHER. MRS. JEREMY WAS NODDING, AND GERTRUDE, BELIEVING THAT SHE SHOULD NOT BE MISSED, WAS GLIDING OUT OF THE ROOM TO GO AND SIT A WHILE BY HERSELF IN THE MOONLIGHT, WHEN SHE MET MR. PHILLIPS IN THE HALL. "'WHAT ARE YOU HERE ALL ALONE FOR?' ASKED HE. "'WHY DIDN'T YOU GO TO THE CONCERT?' I have a headache. I saw you had, at dinner. Is it no better? No, I believe not. Come and walk with me on the piazza a little while. It will do you good. She went, and he talked very entertainingly to her, told her a great many amusing anecdotes, succeeded in making her smile, and even laugh, and seemed very much pleased at having done so. He related many amusing things he had seen and heard since he had been staying at Saratoga in the character of a spectator, and ended by asking her if she didn't think it was a heartless show the question took gertrude by surprise she asked his meaning don't you think there is something very ridiculous in so many thousand people coming here to enjoy themselves i don't know answered gertrude but it has not seemed so to me i think it's an excellent thing for those who do enjoy themselves and how many do the greater part i suppose pshaw no they don't more than half go away miserable "'and nearly all the rest dissatisfied. "'Do you think so? "'Now I thought the charm of the place was seeing so many happy faces. "'They have nearly all looked happy to me. "'Oh, that's all on the surface, and if you'll notice, "'those who look happy one day are wretched enough the next. "'Yours was one of the happy faces yesterday, "'but it isn't to-day, my poor child.' "'Then perceiving that his remark caused the hand which rested on his arm to tremble— while the eyes which had been attentively raised to his suddenly fell, and hid themselves under their long lashes. He continued, However, we will trust soon to see it as bright as ever. But they should not have brought you here. Catskill Mountain was a fitter place for your lively imagination and reflecting mind. A sensitive nature should not be exposed to all the shafts of malice, envy, and ill-will it is sure to encounter in one of these crowded resorts of selfish, base, and cruel humanity. Oh!— exclaimed Gertrude, at once comprehending that Mr. Phillips suspected her to be smarting under some neglect, feeling of wounded pride, or, perhaps, serious injury. You speak harshly. All are not selfish, all are not unkind. Ah, you are young and full of faith. Trust whom you can, and as long as you can. I trust no one. No one? Is there none, then, in the whole world, whom you love and confide in? Scarcely, certainly not more than one. Whom should I trust?' THE GOOD, THE PURE, THE TRULY GREAT. AND WHO ARE THEY? HOW SHALL WE DISTINGUISH THEM? I TELL YOU, MY YOUNG FRIEND, THAT IN MY EXPERIENCE, AND IT HAS BEEN RICH, I, VERY RICH, AND HE SET HIS TEETH AND SPOKE WITH BITTERNESS. THE SO-CALLED GOOD, THE HONORABLE, THE upright MAN, HAS PROVED BUT THE VARNISHED HYPOCRITE, THE HIGHLY FINISHED AND POLISHED SINNER. YES, CONTINUED HE, HIS VOICE GROWING DEEPER, HIS MANNER MORE EXCITED AS HE SPOKE. I can think of one, a respectable man, one of your first men, yes, and a church member, whose hardness, injustice, and cruelty made my life what it has been, a desert, a blank, or worse than that, and I can think of another, an old, rough, intemperate sailor, over whose head a day never passed that he did not take the name of his God in vain who had, nevertheless, at the bottom of his heart, a drop of such pure, unsullied essence of virtue as could not be distilled from the souls of ten thousand of your polished rogues. Which, then, shall I trust, the good religious men, or the low, profane, and abject ones? Trust in goodness wherever it be found, answered Gertrude. But, oh, trust all rather than none. Your world, your religion, draws a closer line, "'Call it not my world, or my religion,' said Gertrude. "'I know of no such line. "'I know of no religion but that of the heart. "'Christ died for us all alike, "'and since few souls are so sunk in sin "'that they do not retain some spark of virtue and truth, "'who shall say in how many a light will at last spring up, "'by aid of which they may find their way to God?' "'You are a good child, and full of hope and charity,' "'said Mr. Phillips, pressing her arm closely to his side.' I will try and have faith in you, but see our friends have returned from the concert. Let us go and meet them. They had had a delightful time. Alboni had excelled herself, and they were so sorry Gertrude did not go. but perhaps whispered netta, you have enjoyed yourself more at home. She half repented of the sly intimation, even before the words had escaped her. for Gertrude, as she stood leaning unconcernedly upon Mr. Philip's arm, looked so innocent of confusion or embarrassment. "'that her very manner refuted Netta's suspicions. "'Miss Clinton was there,' continued Netta, "'and looked beautifully. "'She had a crowd of gentlemen about her. "'But didn't you notice? "'And she turned to Mrs. Pentrecourt. "'That one seemed to meet with such marked favour "'that I wonder the rest were not discouraged. "'I mean that tall, handsome young man "'who waited upon her in the hall "'and went out soon after. "'She devoted herself to him while he stayed. "'It was the same one, was it not?' asked Ellen who afterwards, towards the close of the concert, came in and stood leaning against the wall for some minutes. Yes, answered Netta, but he only waited for Alboni to finish singing, and then approaching Miss Clinton, leaned over and whispered a word or two in her ear. After that she got up, left her seat, and they both went off, rather to the mortification of the other gentlemen. I noticed them pass by the window where we sat, and walk across the grounds together— "'Yes, just in the midst of that beautiful piece from Lucia,' said Ellen. "'How could they go away?' "'Oh, it is not strange, under the circumstances,' said Mr. Pentricourt, "'that Miss Clinton should prefer a walk with Mr. Sullivan "'to the best music in the world.' "'Why?' asked Netta. "'Is he very agreeable? "'Is he supposed to be the favoured one?' "'I should think there was no doubt of it,' answered Mr. Pentricourt. "'I believe it was generally thought to be an engagement,' He was in Paris with them during the spring, and they all came home in the same steamer. Everybody knows it is the wish of Mr. Clinton's heart, and Miss Isabel makes no secret of her preference. Oh, certainly, interposed Mrs. Pendercourt. It is an understood thing. I heard it spoken of by two or three persons this evening. What became of Gertrude all this time? Could she, who for six years had nursed the fond idea that to Willie she was, and should still continue to be, all in all— could she stand patiently by, and hear him thus disposed of and given to another? She did do it, not consciously, however, for her head swam round, and she would have fallen but for the firm support of Mr. Phillips, who held her arm so tightly that though he felt, the rest could not see how she trembled. Fortunately, too, none but he thought of noticing her blanched face, and as she stood somewhat in the shadow, he alone, fully aware of her agitation, was watching the strained and eager eyes, the parted and rigid lips, the death-like pallor of her countenance. Standing there, with her heart beating like a heavy drum, and almost believing herself in a horrid dream, she listened attentively, heard and comprehended every word. She could not, however, have spoken or moved for her life, and in an instant more accident might have betrayed her excited and almost alarming condition." But Mr. Phillips acted, spoke, and moved for her, and she was spared an exposure from which her delicate and sensitive spirit would have shrunk indeed. Mr. Sullivan, said he, ah, a fine fellow, I know him. Miss Gertrude, I must tell you an anecdote about that young man. And moving forward in the direction in which they had been walking when they met the party from the concert, he made as if they were still intending to prolong their promenade. A promenade, however, in which he was the only walker, For Gertrude was literally borne upon his arm, until the rest of the company, who started at the same moment for the parlor, were hid within its shelter, and he and his companion were left the sole occupants of that portion of the piazza. Until then, he proceeded with his story, and went so far as to relate that he and Mr. Sullivan were, a few years previous, traveling together across an Arabian desert, when the latter proved of signal service, in saving him from a sudden attack by a wandering tribe of Bedouins. By the time he had thus opened his narration, he perceived that all danger of observation was past, and hesitated not to stop abruptly, and without ceremony or apology, place her in an armchair which stood conveniently near. "'Sit here,' said he, "'while I go and bring you a glass of water.' He then wrapped her mantle tightly about her, and walked quickly away. Oh, how Gertrude thanked him in her heart for thus considerately leaving her, and giving her time to recover herself! It was the most judicious thing he could have done, and the kindness. He saw that she would not faint, and knew that left alone, she would soon rally her powers, perhaps be deceived by the idea that even he was only half aware of her agitation, and wholly ignorant of its cause. He was gone some minutes, and when he returned she was perfectly calm, She tasted the water, but he did not urge her to drink it. He knew she did not require it. "'I have kept you out too long,' said he. "'Come, you had better go in now.' She rose. He put her arm once more through his, guided her feeble steps to a window which opened into hers and Emily's room, and then, pausing a moment, said, in a meaning tone, at the same time enforcing his words by the fixed glance of his piercing eye, "'You exhort me, Miss Gertrude, to have faith in everybody.' but I bid you, all inexperienced as you are, to beware lest you believe too much. Where you have good foundation for confidence, abide by it if you can, firmly and bravely. But trust nothing which you have not fairly tested, and especially rest assured that the idle gossip of a place like this is utterly unworthy of credit. Good night. What an utter revulsion of feeling these words occasioned Gertrude! They came to her with all the force of a prophecy, and struck deep into her heart. Was there not wisdom in the stranger's counsel? It was true, she thought, that he spoke merely such simple axioms as a long experience of the world might dictate. But how forcible, in her case, was their application! Had not she, blindly yielding to her gloomy presentiments and fears, been willing to lend a too-ready ear to the whisperings of her own jealous imagination, and a too-credulous one to the idle reports of others? While in reality she had proved a traitor to a more noble trust— WHO, DURING THE MANY YEARS SHE HAD KNOWN HIM, COULD HAVE PROVED HIMSELF MORE WORTHY OF CONFIDENCE THAN WILLIE. HAD HE NOT, FROM HIS BOYHOOD, BEEN EXEMPLARY IN EVERY VIRTUE, SUPERIOR TO EVERY MEANNESS AND EVERY FORM OF VICE? HAD HE NOT, IN HIS EARLY YOUTH, FORSAKEN ALL THAT HE HELD MOST DEAR, TO TOIL AND LABOR BENEATH AN INDIAN SUN, THAT HE MIGHT PROVIDE COMFORTS AND LUXURIES FOR THOSE whose SUPPORT HE EAGERLY TOOK UPON HIMSELF? had he not ever proved honourable, high-minded, sincere, and warm of heart? Above all, had he not been imbued from his infancy with the highest and purest of Christian principles? He had indeed been all this, and while Gertrude called it to mind, and dwelt upon each phase of his consistent course, she could not fail to remember, too, that Willie, whether as the generous, kind-hearted boy, the adventurous, energetic youth, the successful, respected, yet sorrow-tried man, had ever manifested towards her the same deep, ardent, enthusiastic attachment. The love which he had shown for her in her childhood, and during that period when, though still a child, she labored under the full-grown care and sorrow entailed upon her by Uncle True's sickness and death, had seemed to grow and deepen in every successive day, month, and year of their separation. During their long and regular correspondence, no letter had come from Willie that did not breathe the same spirit of devoted affection for Gertrude, an exclusive affection, in which there could be no rivalship. All his thoughts of home and future happy days were inseparably associated with her. And although Mrs. Sullivan, with that instinctive reserve which was one of her characteristics, never broached the subject to Gertrude, Her whole treatment of the latter sufficiently evinced that to her mind the event of her future union with her son was a thing certain. The whole declaration on Willie's part, conveyed in the letter received by Gertrude soon after his mother's death, that his hopes, his prayers, his labours were now all for her, was not a more convincing proof of the tender light in which he regarded her than all their previous intercourse had been. Should Gertrude then distrust him? should she at once set aside all past evidences of his worth and give ready credence to his prompt desertion of his early friend no she resolved immediately to banish the unworthy thought to cherish still the firm belief that some explanation would shortly offer itself which would yet satisfy her aching heart until then she would trust him bravely and firmly too would she trust for her confidence was not without foundation As she made this heroic resolve, she lifted up her drooping head, and gazed out into the night. The moon had gone down, and the sky was studded with stars, bright, clear, and beautiful. Gertrude loved a starry night. It invigorated and strengthened her. And now as she looked up, directly above her head, stood the star she so much loved. The star which she had once fondly fancied, it was Uncle True's blessed privilege to light for her. And, as in times long past, these heavenly lights had spoken of comfort to her soul, she seemed now to hear ringing in her ears the familiar saying of the dear old man, "'Cheer up, Bertie, for I'm of the pinion, "'twill all come out right at last.' Gertrude continued through the short remainder of the evening in an elevated frame of mind, which might almost be termed joyful, and thus sustained, she was able to go back to the drawing-room for Emily, say good-night to her friends with a cheerful voice, and before midnight she sought her pillow and went quietly to sleep. This composed state of mind, however, was partly the result of strong excitement, and therefore could not last. The next morning found her once more yielding to depressed spirits, and the effort which she made to rise, dress, and go to breakfast was almost mechanical. She excused herself from her customary walk with the doctor, for to that she felt quite unequal. Her first wish was to leave Saratoga. She longed to go home, to be in a quiet place, where so many eyes would not be upon her. And when the doctor came in with the letters which had arrived by the early mail, she looked at them so eagerly that he observed it, and said smilingly, "'None for you, Gertie, but one for Emily, which is the next best thing, I suppose?' To Gertrude this was the very best thing, for it was a long-expected letter from Mr. Graham, which would probably mention the time of his return from abroad, and consequently determine the continuance of her own and Emily's visit at Saratoga. To their astonishment, he had already arrived in New York, and desired them to join him there the following day. Gertrude could hardly conceal her satisfaction— which was, however, if noticed by her friends, merely attributed to the pleasure she probably felt at the return of Mr. and Mrs. Graham, and Emily, really delighted at the prospect of so soon meeting her father, to whom she was fondly attached, was eager to commence preparations for leaving. They therefore retired to their own room, and Gertrude's time until dinner was fully occupied in the business of packing. Throughout the whole of the previous day she had been anxiously hoping that Willie would make his appearance at their hotel. Now, on the contrary, she as earnestly dreaded such an event. To meet him in so public a manner, too, as must be here inevitable, would, under her present state of feelings, be insupportable. She would infinitely prefer to be in Boston when he should first see and recognize her. And, if she tormented herself yesterday with the fear that he would not come— the dread that he might do so was a still greater cause of distrust to her to-day she was therefore relieved when after dinner mr phillips kindly proposed a drive to the lake dr Grisworth and one of his daughters had he assured gertrude agreed to take seats in a carriage which he had provided and he hoped she would not refuse to occupy the fourth as it was an hour when emily would not require her presence and she would thus be sure to avoid willie she gladly consented to the arrangement they had been at the lake nearly an hour. Doctor Grisworth and his daughter, Ellen had been persuaded by a party whom they met there to engage in bowling. Mr. Phillips and Gertrude had declined taking part, but stood for some time looking on. The day, however, being warm, and the air in the building uncomfortably close, they had gone outside and seated themselves on a bench at a little distance to wait until the game was concluded. As they sat thus, surveying the beautiful sheet of water, now rosy red with the rays of the descending sun, a couple approached, and took up a position near them. Mr. Phillips was quite screened from their observation by the trunk of a huge tree, and Gertrude, sufficiently so to be unnoticed, though the sudden paleness which overspread her face as they drew near, was so marked as clearly to indicate that she saw and recognized William Sullivan and Isabel Clinton. The words which they spoke also fell distinctly upon her ear. Shall I, then, be so much missed? asked Isabel, looking earnestly into the face of her companion, who, with a serious air, was gazing out upon the water. Missed? replied he, turning towards her, and speaking in a slightly reproachful voice. How can it be otherwise? Who can supply your place? But it will be only two days. A short time, under ordinary circumstances, said Willie. "'but an eternity.' "'Here he checked himself, "'and made a sudden motion to proceed on their walk. "'Isabel followed him, saying, "'But you will wait here until my return.' "'He again turned to reply, "'and this time the reproachful look "'which overspread his features was visible to Gertrude, "'as he said, with great earnestness, "'Certainly, can you doubt it?' "'The strange, fixed, unnatural expression "'which took possession of Gertrude's countenance "'as she listened to this conversation.' to her so deeply fraught with meaning, was fearful to witness. "'Gertrude!' exclaimed Mr. Phillips, after watching her for a moment. "'Gertrude, for heaven's sake, do not look so! Speak, Gertrude, what is the matter?' But she did not turn her eyes, did not move a feature of that stony face. She evidently did not hear him. He took her hand. It was cold as marble. His face now wore an appearance of distress, almost equal to her own. GREAT TEARS RUSHED TO HIS EYES AND ROLLED DOWN HIS CHEEKS. ONCE HE STRETCHED FORTH HIS ARMS, AS IF HE WOULD GLADLY CLASP HER TO HIS BOSOM AND soothe HER LIKE A LITTLE CHILD. BUT WITH EVIDENT EFFORT HE REPRESSED THE EMOTION. GERTRUDE, SAID HE, AT LENGTH, LEANING FORWARD AND FIXING HIS EYES FULL UPON HERS, WHAT HAVE THESE PEOPLE DONE TO YOU? WHY DO YOU CARE FOR THEM? IF THAT YOUNG MAN HAS INJURED YOU, THE RASCAL, HE SHALL ANSWER FOR IT. AND HE SPRUNG TO HIS FEET. The words and the action brought Gertrude to herself. "'No, no,' said she, "'he is not that. I am better now. "'Do not speak of it. Don't tell.' And she looked anxiously in the direction of the bowling alley. "'I am a great deal better.' And, to his astonishment, for the fearful, rigid look on her face had frightened him, she rose with perfect composure, and proposed going home. He accompanied her silently, and before they were halfway up the hill where they had left the carriage, they were overtaken by the rest of their party, and in a few moments were driving towards Saratoga. During the whole drive and the evening which followed, Gertrude preserved the same rigid, unnatural composure. Once or twice before they reached the hotel, Dr. Grisworth asked her if she fell ill, and Mr. Phillips turned many an anxious glance towards her. The very tones of her voice were constrained— So much so, that Emily, on her reaching the house, inquired at once, "'What is the matter, my dear child?' But she declared herself quite well, and went through all the duties and proprieties of the evening, bidding farewell to many of her friends, and when she parted from the Grisworths, arranging to see them again in the morning. To the careless eye, Emily was the more troubled of the two, for Emily could not be deceived, and reflected back, in her whole demeanour, the better concealed sufferings of Gertrude, Gertrude neither knew at the time, nor could afterwards recall, one half of the occurrences of that evening. She never could understand what it was that sustained her, and enabled her, half unconsciously, to perform her part in them. How she so successfully concealed the misery she was enduring, she never could comprehend or explain. She remembered it only as if it had all been a dream. NOT UNTIL THE STILL HOURS OF THE NIGHT, WHEN EMILY APPEARED TO BE SOUNDLY SLEEPING BY HER SIDE, DID SHE VENTURE FOR AN INSTANT TO loosen THE IRON BANDS OF RESTRAINT WHICH SHE HAD IMPOSED UPON HERSELF. BUT THEN, THE BARRIER REMOVED, THE PENT-UP TORRENT OF HER GRIEF BURST FORTH WITHOUT CHECK OR HINDRANCE. SHE ROSE FROM HER BED, AND, BURYING HER FACE IN THE CUSHIONS OF A LOW COUCH, WHICH STOOD NEAR THE WINDOW, GAVE HERSELF UP TO BLESSED TEARS, EVERY DROP OF WHICH WAS A RELIEF TO HER ACHING SOUL. Since her early childhood she had never indulged, so long and unrestrained, a fit of weeping. And the heaving of her chest, and the deep sobs she uttered, proved the depth of her agony. All other sorrows had found in her a great deal fortified and prepared, armed with a religious trust, and encouraged by a holy hope. But beneath this sudden and unlooked-for blow she bent, staggered and shrunk, as the sapling of a summer's growth heaves and trembles beneath a wintry blast that Willie was faithless to his first love, she could not now feel a shadow of a doubt, and with this conviction she realized that the prop and stay of her life had fallen. Uncle True and Mrs. Sullivan were both her benefactors, and Emily was still a dear and steadfast friend. But all of these had been more or less dependent upon Gertrude, and although she could ever repose in the assurance of their love, two had long before they passed away come to lean wholly upon her youthful arm, and the other, the last one left, not only trusted her to guide her uncertain steps, but those steps were evidently now tending downwards to the grave. Upon whom, then, should Gertrude lean? To whom should she look as a staff of her young and inexperienced life? To whom could she, with confidence, turn for counsel, protection, support, and love? To whom but Willie, and Willie had given his heart to another, and Gertrude would soon be left alone. No wonder, then, that she wept as the broken-hearted weep, wept until the fountain of her tears was dry, and she felt herself sick, faint, and exhausted. And now she rose, approached the window, flung back from her forehead the heavy folds of her long hair, leaned out, and from the breath of the cool night breeze drank in a refreshing influence. Her soul grew calmer, as with her eyes fixed upon the bright lights which shone so sweetly and calmly down, she seemed to commune with holy things. Once more they seemed to compassionate her, and, as in the days of her lonely childhood, to whisper, Gertie, Gertie, poor little Gertie. Softened and touched by their pitying glance, she gradually sunk upon her knees. Her uplifted face, her clasped hands, the sweet expression of resignation now gradually creeping over her countenance, all gave evidence that, as on the occasion of her first silent prayer to the then unknown God, Her now enlightened soul was holding deep communion with its Maker, and once more her spirit was uttering the simple words, Here I am, Lord. Ah, blessed religion which can sustain the heart in such an hour as this! Oh, blessed faith and trust, which when earthly support fails us, and our strongest earthly stay proves but a rope of sand, lifts the soul above all other need, and clasps it to the bosom of its God. And now a gentle hand is laid upon her head, She turns and sees Emily, whom she had believed to be asleep, but from whom anxiety had effectually banished slumber, and who, with fears redoubled by the sobs which Gertrude could not wholly repress, is standing by her side. Gertrude, said she, in a grieved tone, are you in trouble, and did you seek to hide it from me? Do not turn from me, Gertrude. And throwing her arms around her, she drew her head close to her bosom, and whispered, "'Tell me all, my darling, what is the matter with my poor child?' And Gertrude unburdened her heart to Emily, disclosing to her attentive ear the confession of the only secret she had ever kept from her. And Emily wept as she listened, and when Gertrude had finished, she pressed her again and again to her heart, exclaiming as she did so, with an excitement of tone and manner, which Gertrude had never before witnessed in the usually calm and placid blind girl." strange strange that you too should be thus doomed oh gertrude my darling we may well weep together but still believe me your sorrow is far less bitter than mine and then in the darkness of that midnight hour was gertrude's confidence rewarded by the revelation of that tale of grief and woe which twenty years before had blighted emily's youth and which notwithstanding the flight of time was still vivid to her recollection, casting over her life a dark shadow, of which her blindness was but a single feature. End of chapter 39